listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. You know, from time to time, you're going to be asked to introduce someone. Maybe it's somebody at work or you're out for lunch with a friend and uh, someone walks up and you introduce them or maybe here it's church. And, you know, there's these things that we come up with. How do you introduce someone? And that's where we have been seeing John in this. And if it was your job to introduce the very Son of God, the chosen Messiah, then what would you say? Well, John opened up and he introduced Jesus as the Word, that this eternal one that was with God and he was God, a part of creation. Well, then he used several of the very first disciples that introduced Jesus to us, that John the Baptist said, hey, this right here is the Lamb of God. Andrew introduced him as the Messiah. Philip was the promised one. Nathaniel. He said, this is the Son of God. Well, today, John's going to continue introducing us to Jesus, and he's going to do it by a miracle, but John will use the word sign, of turning some very nasty dishwater to beautifully aged wine. So if you'll turn with me in the book of John, the Gospel of John, we're going to begin there this morning. And as you're finding your place there, I've been thinking this week, and this is where I find myself, do you ever find it difficult to really believe that Jesus can and he really will do something to change a situation? Maybe it's an illness that you've been praying for years for yourself or someone else, that God would do something and nothing seems to happen, and it's just almost setback after setback. And for us, Uh, eight years of infertility, I tell you, about four years in, you begin wondering, man, I've been told my whole life that you hold all power. Why are you not doing something in this situation? Or maybe it's someone you've been praying for years for their heart to change. You want them to come to know Christ, and you've prayed, and you've prayed, and you've prayed, and nothing seems to be happening. Maybe they even seem to be getting harder and harder to the things of the truth. Maybe it's a relationship, and Man, you've been praying and you've been needing God to move in this time and nothing seems to happen. Or maybe financial issues and you've prayed about it and you've worked on that budget and you've tried to find extra jobs. You're doing certain things and you're trying to be good stewards, but nothing seems to change. So I found myself this past week, I've been meeting with this young man and I'm telling you, I've never seen a life that's such a train wreck driving home after one meeting, and I just began thinking, God, I want to believe you can change his life, but I'm having a really hard time believing that you can do that. It is such a train wreck. Well, if you've ever questioned God's power to do something or that he will, I want you to know today is a passage that will be for you, that was for me this past week. And so if you have your Bibles, let's Begin in chapter 2 this morning of the Gospel of John, beginning in verse 1. It says, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and 
The mother of, the Je- mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. And so this begins as just an ordinary wedding. Something that happens, and from time to time you'll see this. It's a wedding, but here's what begins to get interesting. That John is writing 50 years after this event. In fact, he's writing about 25 to 30 years after the other gospel writers. It's the last gospel written. And I think it's one of these situations where John witnessed all these things. And as he got older and as time passed by, he then begins to realize, wait, there was much more to that than I realized. And I think that's what's happening. He's beginning to see the greater significance of what's happening. And he records it for us. And so we find ourselves in this this wedding in Cana. And so Mary's there, the mother of Jesus. You only see her two times in the gospel. You see her at this wedding, and you'll see her at the cross. That's the only time you see her. Jesus is there. Some disciples, probably the five we saw last week. And it's in Cana, which was only about four miles from where Jesus grew up. So this is probably a close family friend, or this could be a family member, that they are there at this wedding. So they're at this wedding, and weddings are powerful things. We, we idolize them and idealize them. We dramatize them. And I'll be honest, weddings can make you crazy. Uh, I, from time to time, I get to do premarital counseling, and it's always fun. Uh, but one of the things we always do up front is we identify what are their biggest stresses in life. And as Brent said last week, 70% of the arguments you'll have uh, are reoccurring things. Me, I like to keep it fresh. I like to find something new to argue about. But with, with the wife or, or the, the soon-to-be wife, the, the, the uh, woman, almost always the number one stress in her life during premarital counseling is the wedding. Guys, sometimes it registers, sometimes not. But for the woman, it's always the number one stress in her life is the wedding. Because they can make us absolutely crazy. Because, especially the woman, she wants it to be perfect. They want you to think it's the best wedding you've ever gone to. So I found out 10 ways, young women, how you can make, and this is the title of it, how to make your Christian wedding the talk of the church for months to come. Because honestly, that's really what you're after, isn't it? You want it to be the talk of the church. It's the greatest thing they ever found. So number one, commit or announce a commitment to celibacy for the entire marriage. Below average Christians commit to celibacy until marriage. But above average Christians, they commit to it for their entire lives. Have your pastor, number two, read 1 Corinthians 13 in the original Greek. Because it's proven that sermons are holier if you quote a bunch of Greek. Ensure, number three, that the bride's father provides an ample dowry. Number four, include a ceremonial throwing of purity rings into the fires of Mount Doom. Number five, the father-daughter dance, the beloved dance, must be now good, good father because butterfly kisses was so 1990. You throw a copy of I Kiss Dating Goodbye to all the single ladies in the crowd. Number seven, the bride wears her garter on her wrist because obviously you want to look like Mary, not Rahab. Here's a great one. Number eight, Chick-fil-A must cater. You want to have the great Christian wedding. 
Hold your ceremony in a barn just like the one Jesus was born in. And number 10, my favorite, and you all know this is true, spend thousands of dollars on mason jars so it doesn't look like you spent a lot of money. But see, weddings can make us crazy because of the pressure that is on them. And weddings during this time were even more so. Because weddings during this time, in fact, the older I get, especially having daughters, weddings were arranged. And I'm telling you, I'm more in favor of that every day. But it isn't what we think. It isn't just like the, the dad or they get together and they pick some stranger. Usually what would happen, you would grow up in a small community or a town or maybe a region. And as this young man went on his day doing the things to help the family, whatever it might be, his eye would be caught by a young lady. Perhaps she's working her father's produce stand. Or maybe, you know, he sees her at, they're pressing uh, olives at the time for the olive oil. And he notices her. Well, he would then go to his father and he'd say, Father, I'm interested in this lady. Could you help me out? He would then go to the woman's father, sit down, and these men would then work out the arrangement. So what would happen is, if this couple or these fathers came together and came to agreement and they thought that this was a good thing, a contract would be prepared. Vows then exchanged, usually in a synagogue, tokens were exchanged, and then the couple would then return to their parents' home. This time was usually a time for the groom to prepare to bring his bride home. What he typically would do, he would typically add on to his father's house. You couldn't afford a big house like the father would have, you know, two rooms. So he would then add on to his father's house. When that was ready, he would then go in to bring his wife home. So during this time, they were considered legally married, even though they lived apart. Sometimes around two months to a year, this betrothed time would happen. And that's where you see Mary and Joseph when you see them in the scriptures. Well, at the end of this waiting period, the groom would then take to the streets with his friend, kind of the very first bachelor party. And they'd go through the streets typically at night with torches. Kind of seems a little scary to me. But then usually they would come to the bride's house and there would be this wonderful parade through the, the streets. So speeches would be given, blessings were pronounced over the couple. Then the groom would take his bride home where the family and friends would gather for a week-long celebration. I can't think of anything more torturing than getting married and then spending the next week with 40 to 50 of your closest family and friends. But that's how they did it back then. What would happen is that this time of this wedding celebration was really a test or a display for the groom. It was a display of could he provide for this family and friends for the food and the drinks, usually for a week, and it was a test to show that he could care for his own family. So this is where we find, can you imagine the pressure that this young groom would be under? So then you read verse 3. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And man, there's so much meaning packed into this verse here that they have no wine. Because John is looking back 50 years later and he's seeing now, wow, there is much more to this than I realized back when I was a young man. Because what would happen 
uh, most times in a city, the city gates where you did the business. That's where you came together. If you were traveling, it's where you could rest. It's where contracts were created. Uh, but the heart of the city was the wine press. This was where the city would come together during the harvest. And your, your unique village would come together for this crushing of the grapes and the preparing of the wine. And it was a, a communal, a collective thing that happened. And this would be the trademark of any village. It, it kind of became the community pride was the wine that you produced. But also to the Jewish mind, when they heard this, there is no wine. It symbolized something else. Let me give you some examples in the Old Testament. Uh, the first one, Judges 9, verse 13, about the picture of wine to a Jewish mind. In verse 13, it says, But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go and hold sway over the trees? Genesis 27, 28 says, May God give you of the dew of the heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Ecclesiastes 9 verse 7 says, Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. In Psalm 104 verse 14 and 15 it says, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of men, oil to make his face shine and his beard to strengthen man's heart. So you see, to a Jewish mind, wine meant joy. It, it signified life. And so to a Jewish mind, when Mary says they have no wine, it's almost as if she's saying they have no joy, they have no hope, they have no life. Because you see the significance of all wrapped up when Jesus came. Jesus comes to the Israelites when they are still under judgment. For 400 years, God had been silent until the one crying out in the wilderness says, Behold, the Lamb of God is finally here. Jesus shows up when they've experienced almost 600 years of being held captive by the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greece, and now Rome. And so it's a physical statement about a higher spiritual reality that no wine means there's no joy, there's no hope, there's no power to change our own lives. So on the surface, you can see men... Mary cares for this family. She doesn't want them to be humiliated. She doesn't want them to be embarrassed. So she turns to Jesus and she says, Son, they have no wine. But you have to think then, what is Mary expecting? I mean, it's not like, I mean, 40 to 50 people. You know, it's not like Jesus can just run down to the local fat dogs and buy a couple of, you know, barrels and bring them back. But some say it's because Joseph had died and Jesus was the oldest and she's just learned to lean on Jesus. Or did she expect a miracle? Well, let's find out in verse 4. So Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? And here's what is so amazing about this gospel of John is that if you were going to introduce Jesus to the world... 
you would probably do it in the most easy, most comfortable, palatable, easy to believe, easy to follow Jesus. Be something like this, I think. You know, hey, I want to introduce you to Jesus. And, you know, he loves children. He's good to pets. You know, he's a trusted friend during, man, the hardest time. He'll never leave you. Man, if, he'll never make you feel worse about yourself. He'll only make you feel better. Man, if you need a lending hand or a shoulder to cry on, I'm telling you, this right here is your guy. You know, he doesn't care if you're brown, yellow, black, and white. Man, you're precious in his sight. Doesn't care whether you're vegan or gluten-free or not HMO or if you love meat, Jesus will not judge you. You can wear your baggy, saggy pants or your skinny jeans. That Jesus is just here. Because we want to present the easiest to follow, easiest to believe Jesus. And John doesn't do that at all. John doesn't present Jesus in this easy way. In fact, he will record some of the most difficult sayings of Jesus. And this is one of them. Jesus looks at his mother and he says, Woman, what does this have to do with me? So men, young men in the group, I want to encourage you not to use that term when talking to your wife or your mother. But back then it was. It was a polite term. It would be like saying ma'am or madam. But then he says... What does this have to do with me? It literally means this. What is there between you and me? Or we have nothing in common. So when you look for cross-references to help you understand what Jesus means, it's disheartening to see the only time you see this is in Mark 1 and Luke 4 where Jesus is addressed by the demons. And they say to him, We know you, but what do you have to do with us. I'm thinking, isn't that a strange way to address your mother that has just said, listen, Jesus, they have no wine. And he says, there's nothing that we have in common. What is there between us? So here's what I think is happening. I believe Jesus, for the first time publicly, is removing himself from underneath his mother's authority. And it's a good thing. I believe it is showing us that Jesus and Mary are moving into a new relationship that she will desperately need. The reason is because of what Jesus says next. He goes on to say, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So five times Jesus will use this phrase, and my hour has not yet come. So what is the hour, and then when will it come? And Every time you see the reference to hour, it's always in reference to the life that Jesus will have to live that ends in complete devastation on the cross. Where Jesus will have to endure the pain, the ridicule of letting sin do whatever he wants to him so that the Father can forgive. It's the suffering and death that Jesus must endure. So the hour is the reason that Jesus came. So when does it happen? In John chapter 13, at the Last Supper, Jesus says he knows that it is time of his rest, his trial, and his soon-to-be crucifixion. So Jesus is coming for a greater purpose than Mary even realized. As much as she knew about him, as much time as she spent, Jesus had to come, and as much as Jesus loved her, he had to show her, I have to follow God the Father above all else, even 
family relationships here on earth. That his mission has to come before any mission that you might think I need to be. Mary had to learn to approach Jesus like everyone else. As great as she was, as important as Jesus' mother was, she had to learn to come to him as as a sinner in need of a savior like everyone else did. And that relationship had to change. Jesus had to come to fulfill his father's plan, not his mother's. That Jesus had to please his father above everyone else. You know, I've been thinking through this, that then how important is that truth? That if Jesus came according to what I wanted and according to the things that I would say were important, then it went a lot like this when I read John Mita. He said, Jesus did not leave heaven to please men as much as we would want him to. Because if he did, he never would have offered his life as a sacrifice for sin. If he responded to what men desired for him, he would have filled our bellies, healed our diseases, and made us comfortable. And then all humanity could have died and gone to hell. But Mary had to learn that she needed a Savior also. But notice Mary's faith in verse 5. He says, woman, what does this have to do between us? What is there between us? And his mother looked at the servants and said, do whatever he tells you. So I don't think that Jesus was refusing his mother's request. I think he was just questioning the timing of when it was going to happen. You see, Mary, she has no idea what Jesus is going to do. She just knows, here's a family that I love that's in hell. That needs help. She doesn't know everything, but she knows he's no ordinary man. I mean, think about if you grew up this way, then an angel came to you and said, hey, you're going to have a child. That might be a little disturbing. Then the angel Gabriel comes and says, the child you will conceive will be by the Holy Spirit. She had to be thinking, well, that's not what we learned in health class. Elizabeth. You go to her, and when she sees you, she says, Behold, mother of my God, you have the child. The shepherds come, and they say, Glory to God in the highest. The wise men, they show up with these gifts, and they say, King of the Jews. You live Luke 2.52, and you watch this young baby grow in wisdom, in stature, and in favor with men. And then here's the kicker. And you never have to discipline him. Can you imagine that parenting situation? You never have to get on to him and tell him to quit picking on his brother or sister. So she didn't understand everything. But she knew he was no ordinary man. And she believed and trusted based on what God had revealed to her. So I believe Mary, I think she saw this as an opportunity. She knew he was going to be the Messiah. And she was ready for him to bust into the scene and take the throne back for King David. But even though she did not fully understand, she still trusted Jesus. She looks at them and she says, whatever he says, do. So notice again, though, there's this physical statement that has an even greater spiritual meaning in verse 6. Now, there were these six stone water jars or containers and They were there for the Jewish rites of purification. 
each holding 20 to 30 gallons. So for this week-long celebration, a good Jew would come together, they would have these vessels, and you would wash all the utensils, you would wash your hands before and even after a meal to keep things kosher. So I believe what this is a picture of is these six stone vessels represented the law. It represented the rites that you had to go through, the process that you would go through, the system that you would follow to make yourself pure. It's what you did to show that you were a part of God's people. It was to show you, though, ultimately, that you could never fulfill it perfectly. You might could wash utensils, you might could wash your hands, but you could never completely become clean. The law was to prepare us for something greater to come. That this external purification would never be enough. So I think it's a picture of the old covenant being replaced by the new. So Jesus then turns to these servants and look at what he says in verses 7 and 8. He said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some and take out and take it to the master of the feast. So the master of the feast was a lot like a wedding planner. Family would hire you. You would then be in charge of the celebration so the family didn't have to worry about it. So Jesus says, fill those vessels and then take some to the master of the feast. Now, first of all, you would have to know a Jew would never, ever, never, ever drink from a purification vessel. I mean, there wouldn't be anything more offensive than that, that you would take something so dirty and put it in your body. Second of all, those servants had to be thinking, no way, Jesus. There's no way I'm going to take this to the master. He's going to spit it out, and then we're all going to get fired, and I need this job. But look what happens. Look at what the servants do. The end of verse 8 And they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, had now become wine. Notice when it changes. I believe they had to be carrying those cups, looking at it, going, hey, this looks like water. Smells like water. About to lose my job over this. It isn't until they hands it to the master of the feast. And when he tasted it, it became wine. I think what's beautiful about this is that not everybody understands what's going on. That Jesus, look at who Jesus reveals himself to from the get-go. At the end of that verse, he says, And the master of the feast, he did not know where it came from. So the man of power, the man of, of influence, he doesn't understand. He doesn't know. But though the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. So the master, he, he's impressed and he calls the groom up too. Because man, you talk about passing with flying colors. The master of the feast, he called the groom in the verse 10. He said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then you bring out the poor wine. But you, you have kept the good wine until now. And what he's saying is, he's like, listen, most people start with the $500 bottle of Napa Valley Cabernet. And, you know, then after everybody's had their fill, then you bring out, you know, the box Franzia when nobody really cares. But you, you have saved the best for last. 
But notice again, it's a physical statement about a greater spiritual reality. Think about what Satan and sin does. It offers us great things. It offers us happiness and blessing and fulfillment. It offers us the good, but it always ends in destruction and death, the bad. But with Jesus, he first endures the pain and the rejection and the penalty of sin, the bad. And then he turns around and he offers you his life, the good. Well, then John concludes by telling us why this is here. This, the first of signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested or painted a picture, displayed his glory. And his disciples, and here it is, they believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and the disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. So John records these signs for us as a display of Jesus' divine attributes for everyone to see. And when the disciples saw it, it says that they believed. And so the point of this sign recorded by John is not that Jesus can meet all of your physical needs, although he can. It's to point that Jesus is uniquely the Son of God that is here to do God's, uh, do the Father's will so that we can believe. And so I think the question we end with is this, is that have you believed that are you trusting in this one for eternal life, for even life now, for the power of Jesus to transform you? Because if Jesus can transform dirty dishwater to beautifully aged wine, he can turn the rebellious sinner into a saint. But if you have believed, if, if you have trusted, Is there a situation where you're finding it hard to really believe that God wants to move? That God has the power to do that? Well, I think that's part of the reason John records these signs. Because John only records seven signs out of about 37. And when you see these signs, and they're only, it's a condensed, it's only from chapters 2 through 12. But the very first sign that we get is the water to wine, the symbol of life and joy and hope. And you know this, the sign that John ends with? He ends with raising Lazarus from the dead, of death and sadness. And I think John is holding Jesus up saying, listen, this is the only one you can trust. This is the only one you can believe in, that he holds all power over life and all power over death. There isn't anyone else that has that. So I think when it is comes time and it's hard to believe, and it's like year after year, month after month, and nothing begins to happen, it's almost as if God isn't listening, that John is saying, reflect on this, that Jesus holds all power over life and death. So church, will you pray with me, asking that God would help us even when our faith is shaken? Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.